Let's pray with me. Holy Spirit, please come and deliver. Holy Spirit, please come in your power. I'm Sean, one of the pastors here, and a special welcome to you if you're new, if you're visiting. Thank you for being here. If you're enjoying the visit in the city, family. I want to take a moment to introduce this series. It's a series through the book of Acts that we will be going through in the coming months, and the series has to do with the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei, that's something, the Latin phrase for the mission of God. Mission of God. So, in order to talk about the mission of God, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, starting with creation. Starting with creation. Now, notice I said starting with creation. Because creation was the beginning, but it was not the end. You see, God's aim from the beginning was new creation. God's aim was to bring a world that was good but still unordered into perfect order. And human beings being made in God's image were central to God's mission of bringing about new creation. But imagine that you are aiming at a target, and then all of a sudden, a concrete block gets dropped down between you and your target. What was that concrete block that came between creation human rebellion, human sin. And so in aiming at new creation, God would have to blast through sin. And so he launched a mission. And immediately he broke out the big guns, right? No, he started very small. He established this tiny beachhead and was manning Abraham. But then Abraham went on to have children, and those children were the nation of Israel. And so the mission grew. And then the mission was further defined in David, a king, and in the line that would come from David. God had wrapped up his mission with these people, Abraham and his descendants, and specifically King David. But all of this, all of this was like sticks and stones. It was just like spears and arrows against this barrier of sin. All that you could find out during this time, all that you could accomplish against this barrier was to know that the barrier was real. And that it was a huge problem. Something else needed to be done. And then one day, the mission of God culminated in one man, Jesus, a son of Abraham, an Israelite, and a descendant of David. And he broke down the barrier. He ushered in this new creation through his life, his death, his resurrection. And then one day he will return. And this groaning creation that is longing for us to come into our perfection, for us to be redeemed, this groaning creation will give way to new creation. And that is the mission of God in summary. But where are we now? Jesus hasn't returned. A new creation isn't fully here. And so has the mission of God failed? No, the mission of God continues, and it continues through us. We are God's missionaries. 
not just in the classic sense, the narrow sense of that word, but in the broadest sense possible. We are God's missionaries. We are incorporated into his mission. And God hasn't left us alone in the mission that he has given us. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And we see in the gospel text from this evening that one of the things that Jesus would do was to pour out the Holy Spirit on the people of God. And yes, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through all that Christ has done, we are guaranteed access through that barrier. We have a down payment of new creation. We have access now into the age to come. But it's more than just us having access. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to show others how to have that same access. You know, we talk a lot about the priesthood of the believer. And we sometimes take that to mean simply that because I'm a priest, I have access to the God. I don't need any other mediation. And that's true. But in the scripture, a priest is never a priest for his own sake. A priest is a priest for the sake of others. And so we, as God's priests, as his ambassadors, as his missionaries, we have access into his presence, but we are the conduits. We are the means by which others will find that same access. And this is what Acts is about. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to carry out God's mission to the world. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to carry out God's mission to the world. And so far as, as you look through the book of Acts, you've seen the expansion of this mission. Initially, it's just Jews only. But then it expands to include Samaritans. And then it expands even further to include Gentiles as well. And all of this is in accordance with what was mentioned at the beginning of Acts, where Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, it's become clear by this point that the mission is for all people, all times, all places. And so now, what do we see in chapter 13? In this passage here, we get a foretaste of what is in store for the mission of God. As Paul and company are going to carry out this mission into the world, what awaits them? What's in store? Well, first, just what we have seen. The mission of God is aimed at Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 4. Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch by the Holy Spirit. They head down to Seleucia, which is on the Mediterranean coast, and from there they set sail to Cyprus, the island. And they start in the city of Salamis, which is on the east coast. And what did they do? Well, verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then they go from east to west, proclaiming as they go. And they get to the city of Paphos, which is in the west of Cyprus. And there they preach to Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul, which is like the governor. He is a Roman official. He's got a Latin name. He is a Gentile. And so from these two bookends of Jew and Gentile, we are left with the impression that on their course through Cyprus, from east to west, Paul and Barnabas are bringing the mission of God to both Jew and Gentile. Now, why is this significant? Or better yet, why is this, why this pattern of Jew first and then Gentile? Paul writes about the same pattern in the book of Romans, for example. And we see it fleshed out in the book of Acts. 
You know, back in 2001, Kelly and I, we had been in Slovakia at this point for about a year. We came home for Christmas to spend Christmas with family. And uh, one of the things that was also happening around that time in Christmas season was the debut of the movie The Fellowship of the Ring. So we had been looking forward to this for a long time. So here we are in this tiny theater in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And we're coming to the end of the film. The credits start to roll. And there's this voice behind us in the theater. And it says, you got to be kidding me. You see, this guy apparently didn't realize this was the first of three movies. <laughs> and so he obviously wasn't familiar with the books. Now imagine that you are reading a story, and you come to the part of the story where the tension is at its height, and you turn the page, and there's nothing there. You've got to be kidding me. You see, the Jews have been part of the story of the mission of God. They've been waiting and waiting for a resolution to the story. They have lived the story. They rehearsed the story in their feasts. But you see, Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were the resolution they were looking for. This was the next installment in the mission of God, this mission that they had been a part of. And so this principle of Jew first seems obvious to us. It had been their mission for so long, and they're invited to continue in it. But you see, the mission also was aimed at the Gentiles. And you know, there aren't very many TV series or very many books that you can just drop in on the middle of, right? Except for the mission of God. You see, in Jesus, God had made it such that it didn't matter if these Gentiles they hadn't lived through all these earlier chapters. It didn't matter. They had been strangers to all of that. They could enter right now, right here and now, into this new mission and jump in where they were. You know, back in chapter 10, Cornelius the Gentile and his household had been incorporated directly into Jesus and they had received the Holy Spirit all without becoming Jews first. They had become full recipients of and participants in the mission. What is the significance for us? The mission of God is aimed at both Jew and Gentile. Because we really don't divide people that way, do we? But we do divide people, don't we? Don't we divide people? Whether it's by nation, race, class, or whatever. And whatever direction the vision goes, whether it's the powerful doing the dividing or it's the powerless doing the dividing, we love. We love divisions. But in Jesus, all those divisions are gone. Whether it's nation, race, class, powerless, that is not how we identify ourselves. We identify ourselves by Jesus' name. Jesus is the one who identifies us. Heals the rifts that exist between these divisions. This means that no one nation, race, class, or whatever has a monopoly on the mission of God. The mission of God is aimed at all people, all times, all places. This also means that no one nation, race, class, or whatever carries the standard by which the mission of God should be carried out. It was very hard for the Jews initially to grant that the Gentiles were on equal footing with them. But they needed each other. And we as the church need one another across these divisions that we make. 
whether it's the divisions of race, whether it's the divisions of nation. The church needs each one another across these battles. So whatever divisions we're used to, whatever divisions we still might like to cling to, they're done away with in Jesus. And for you, whatever your background, whatever mission you have been a part of to this point, you are invited to jump into this new mission, the mission of God. The mission of God is aimed at Jew and Gentile, all people, just like we've seen. But the mission of God is also opposed by Jew and Gentile, as we're about to see. And here in this passage, the upcoming opposition from both Jew and Gentile, which we'll see in the book of Acts, it's embodied in one man, Bar-Jesus, verse 6. He's also called Elamas in verse 8. Now, Elamas is a Jew, and the upcoming opposition from the Jews will revolve around Christ as a stumbling block. Christ as a stumbling block. Many of the Jews that Paul and Barnabas will encounter, they just won't have a paradigm for a Messiah that had to suffer and die and arise again. And this is a ready parallel today among us, among many people. Many people just aren't convinced that Jesus died, that he rose again. Or many people just don't see how it's relevant. And so we're very familiar with this kind of obstacle today, this kind of opposition to the mission. But Elamas, who foreshadows this opposition to come from the Jews, he also foreshadows the opposition that will come from the Gentiles, because Elamas doesn't live like a Jew. He lives like a Gentile. Specifically, Elamas is said to be a magician. And it was this popular religion of magic among the Gentiles, which was a blend of Greco-Egyptian and Greco-Roman ideas. This was one of the principal forces of opposition that the early Christians faced. And we see mention of this throughout the book of Acts. We've seen it already, we see it here, we'll see it again. Now, I don't know which house Elamas belonged to. I don't know if he was a Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw. My bet is he was a Slither. And you may be thinking to yourself that we really don't have a parallel to this today. Not too many of our neighbors are practicing incantations and ritual sacrifices in, in order to manipulate the forces of nature and to constrain the gods into action. But when you understand what the aim of magic was, you'll also begin to understand that we do have parallels to this today. And what was the aim of magic in this setting? It was power. It was power to shape reality according to your desires. And we can home in on a lot of different means by which people seek power today. But I want to focus on one. The magic of money. What else has greater power to shape our reality according to our desires? And for that reason, we will devote our best energies, our best years to money. We will sacrifice to the why? Because it will grant us the power to change reality here. It will allow us to buy all the things we need to make our lives as comfortable as possible. Not in order to constrain the gods, but in order to We would grant us the power to shape the truth. As Tom Zarek of Battlestar Galactica said, truth is told by whoever is left standing. That is the one who has the power, and money grants power. 
So why do you need a dead and risen Messiah? What kind of mission is that? Now the difference is that money isn't evil in and of itself. Whereas the practice of magic was. And for the magicians in those days and to those who love the magic of money today, Paul had these words, verse 10. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and building. Will you not stop making crooked, straight paths of the Lord? Harsh words for any who would think to empower themselves as gods. But you know, sometimes it's too easy in a sermon to say that you're either a Christian who understands that money and the power it gives won't deliver you, or you're a non-Christian who hasn't realized yet that power and money won't but I know a lot of people know this already. A lot of people back then also knew that magic was vacuous, it was empty, it wouldn't fulfill. And a lot of people today, non-Christians, know that money and the power it gives are empty and ultimately won't deliver. <coughs> Here's the question. Do they know the power that will deliver? Maybe they'd come to the end and they realize this doesn't work. Do they know what will work? It is the power of the Holy Spirit that delivers. Power of the Holy Spirit that delivers. That is the power that this passage in Acts, and that the whole book of Acts points us to. And specifically two things. The Holy Spirit empowers us to believe the message of the mission. And to live out the mission. The Holy Spirit empowers us to believe the message of the mission. We see this in Sergius Paulus. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in verse 9, rebukes Elamas and curses him with a temporary blindness. And then verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The power of the Holy Spirit on display in Paul enables this Gentile Roman leader, Sergius Paulus, to believe the message of the mission. And what was that message? That message was that Jesus is the agent through whom God has acted to break down the barrier of sin. And Jesus is our guarantee into the age to come, into this mission that God has been undertaking from the beginning. Jesus is central to that. That is the message. But in addition to empowering us to believe this message, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out the mission and we see this in Paul and Barnabas. You know, in the previous passage, Dan preached from a couple of weeks ago, they're set aside by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they end up here in Cyprus, announcing the message of the mission and inviting people into the mission. And so there we have it. The mission of God, aimed at all, opposed by some. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, many receive the mission and become participants in it. And where does that leave us? The power of the Holy Spirit is aimed at you because you are the object of God's mission. He wants you to be transformed. Whoever you are, whatever other missions that you have been devoted to, you can jump right now into a brand new life brand new purpose. And if you're opposed to the mission of Christ, whether mildly or adamantly, 
quest. Discover whether it's trustworthy, whether it's reliable, whether it's true. Consider it against all the magic that you find alluring, the things that pull you. And if you've already grown disillusioned with all the magic that's out there, it is very easy to grow disillusioned in the city. If that's happening, you're already wise enough to see through that disillusionment. Why not Christ? Consider Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is not only aimed at you. The power of the Holy Spirit is aimed through you. Because God wants to make you a conduit of his mission. He wants to transform the world through you. And that can sound really grand. It can sound almost overwhelming. And I can say that this is probably not going to be grand for you. It's not going to feel great. And that's okay, because it will still be beautiful. You see, there are countless, nameless Christians in the book of Acts. All these people who believe. And every once in a while, a Paul comes along. But I have to say, the odds are that not many of us are going to be Pauls. Maybe. But it's okay. Probably no one's going to remember us in 100 years. No one's going to remember my name or your name, probably. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Probably not. But that doesn't matter. We can still be a part of a mission that will outlive us and live beyond us. How do you carry out this mission? How does God want to transform the world through you? Do the work that you're given to do. Small and great. Practice mundane obedience. Meet the struggles that rise up. Go through the suffering that will inevitably come. Love the people in your life. Speak to the people in your life. Model Christ to others in your life. And each day, aim just a little higher, a little farther. Do all this in Jesus' name. Do all this in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the world has changed more through millions of anonymous lives than through one famous life. So the mission of God isn't pressure, it's a privilege. It's one that we are invited into, all of us. The Holy Spirit and the mission of God. He empowers us to believe. He empowers us to participate. So let's do both. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.